Good afternoon, my dear brothers and sisters. It's a great, great honor to be your teacher this evening. And I was uh, thinking about what I should speak to you about, and it just kept coming to me over and over again, the Great Commission. So I've chosen this passage, and I've called it the greatness of the Great Commission. Now, I've got this instrument. We have the technology in this church. I just have to pray that I use it, okay, and use it properly. Yell out if I don't. I don't care. The greatness of the Great Commission. Now, I've actually chosen this passage for two reasons. First of all, to make sure that we all understand the full Great Commission. Let me just read that again. To make sure that we all understand what is the full Great Commission. Now, do not assume your church understands all that's entailed in the Great Commission. Do not assume your missionaries understand all that's involved in the Great Commission. In fact, I would say that many organizations and scholars have a partial understanding of the Great Commission, which I will seek to show you. It's a, a, a deficient view of the Great Commission. Most people just stop with disciple all nations, and they stop there and they put the three dots in. Watch out for those three dots. Now, there is a very famous football coach named Vince Lombardi from the Green Bay Packers. And it's a famous story that every year at the beginning of the season, he would hold up a football and say, gentlemen, this is a football. And then he would rehearse the fundamentals of football and go over the rules of football, not assuming that they know everything at this point. Every year in our church, for as long as I can remember, the first Sunday of the new year, we usually have a challenge for our church. I would say that in all the years we've done this, half of those challenges, which happened just this year, is Matthew 28. And we go over the fundamentals of the Great Commission. And each year we have different aspects that we emphasize. So, I want to, as one of my goals, to make sure we understand the full Great Commission and all that it entails, the full orbited ministry of the Great Commission. Now, my second reason for choosing this passage is to make sure we don't lose our focus and our unique Christ-given mission in the world. Let me repeat that. To make sure that we do not lose our focus on our unique Christ-given mission in the world. The Great Commission is Christ's mission statement for the church that he is building. It's Christ's mission statement. In fact, in our church, we've adopted this as our mission statement. Why not? We can't approve on Jesus. One reason we need to keep this focus before us is that we, all of us, tend to get distracted, sidetracked. It's, it's almost natural to us as a church, as an individual, as an organization to lose our focus and get sidetracked with good things. There are many today who say the gospel is to feed the poor. Now, please don't leave here and say, I'm against feeding the poor. I'm not saying that. But feeding the poor, as important as it is, is not the Great Commission. It can be used to support the Great Commission or 
get contacts to evangelize, but feeding the poor is not the Great Commission. Sociologists tell us that we live in the age of distractions, and this is really true. We have television, we have uh, movies, we have the internet, we have sports, endless distractions. Really, unlike any time in human history, we have all these choices we can make, and we so easily get off track because it is the age of distraction. Now, if Satan can't stop us, well, then he'll distract us in executing the Great Commission. Can I remind you that Satan hates the Great Commission? He hates every word in the Great Commission, every period and every comma. He hates it. He does not want people from every tribe, every nation, every language, every people group at the throne of Christ. He does not want that. And he will do everything he can to stop that. Most of you here are leaders. I would challenge you to be great commission leaders and keep before your church, before your missionaries and your budgetary choices, Christ's mission statement for his church as he builds it. It should be part of the DNA of our church. Our missionaries, before any missionary goes out, no matter what the missionary is doing, should very clearly understand the full Great Commission. Get them to write a commentary on it. Uh, quiz them on it, that they know the Great Commission in every aspect of it thoroughly. Do not send a missionary out who doesn't know that. Be a Great Commission leader. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, our church is small. We only have 25 people. We only have 50 people. How can we be involved in the Great Commission? Big churches like this uh, do a lot in the Great Commission. Well, that's not true. Let's say you have a church of 50 people. If 50 people pick a mission field or pick a missionary and work with that missionary and partner with that missionary, partner with that field, can have a great impact no matter how small your church is. But you gotta know the big plan. You gotta know what is the commission Jesus gave. So the size of your church really does not matter. It's focus that matters. That you realize you can have a part in the Great Commission and you are to have a part in the Great Commission. Now notice that the Great Commission is strategically placed right at the end of this magnificent gospel of Matthew. It's the gospel of teaching, the gospel to the Jews. What do you do with the great teachings of Christ that we have in this gospel? What do you do with the, the work of Christ upon the cross? What do you do with it when you go through the gospel of Matthew? You tell other nations, that's what you do. What he has taught, what he has done for our sins and to provide eternal life, we must tell the nations of what he has done. Now this brings us to our first point. Oh, there it is in the text there. Wonderful. Boy, we have the technology. Let's look afresh at Christ's own commission. The greatness of the author. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Now, the 11 disciples were there, and most likely the 500 that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 16. The automatic response of these 
disciples of our Lord, when they see the risen Lord Jesus Christ, is to worship him. This was spontaneous, joyous, awesome worship of the risen Lord upon that mountain. Now, I want you to notice that the Lord Jesus Christ receives their worship. If he was just a good man, he should say, stop, please stop, do not worship me. Remember uh, when uh, John tried to fall down before an angel, even an angel says, don't, don't do that. Get up on your feet, just an angel. But the Lord Jesus accepts their worship. Why does he do that? Because he's worthy of that worship. Now, I want to remind you, these are Jews. They're not Gentiles. Gentiles, they'll worship anything. Rats, cows, the sun, literally, sticks, people. These people know the first two commandments. They're committed to worshiping only God. And yet, these Jewish disciples worship the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a significant point at the end of uh, Matthew's gospel. Jesus is worshiped by his disciples. My friends, we worship him. He's unlike any other teacher or leader. We don't worship our teachers. Usually we argue with them. We don't worship our leaders, but they worship him and we worship him and serve him. Now, this worship sets the tone for the commission, and it will be brought out later in the commission. It is in this context of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ that he gives them this wonderful mandate. They are to proclaim the universal salvation message of sins forgiven, life eternal, through Christ the Messiah crucified, risen from the dead. What a message. There is no other message like this. Jesus cannot be put in the pantheon of God. But some doubt it. You would think after three years, he did marvelous miracles. No one had ever seen miracles like this. I've never seen anyone walk on water. They heard the most wonderful words ever spoken. The greatest teaching ever to grace this earth, and yet they doubted. There he was in front of them, the risen Christ. The, there were the kneel uh, appears in his hands and his side, and they, and they doubted. The Bible's so real. The Bible's not a romantic book or an idealistic book. It's not a utopian book. It's real. All through the Bible, it's real. People kill one another. Really great people do terrible things. It's not an idealized book. Next, the greatness of his claim. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, my friends, if this is not true, it is sheer madness that anyone would say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, can you imagine I go home to my wife, Marilyn, and I say, Marilyn, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, you don't know my wife, but I know exactly what she'd do. She'd say, okay, then take out the trash. <laughs> Authority man. Or let's just say, you're, you're such a beautiful audience, let's just say I say to you now, ladies, gentlemen, to Alex Strauch, 
All authority has been given in heaven and on earth. Well, Mark, he's such a beautiful man. Look at him up here. He'd come up on the stage and he'd put his arm around me. He'd say, you know, Alex, that was an inspiring message, but we need you to step down right now. We have some counselors here for you. They're waiting for you. Biblical counselors, and they have some wonderful medication. And we'll call your wife as soon as we can, please. I know how, how he would do it. The disciples didn't laugh. This wasn't a joke to them. Because it was true. Now, in the Greek text, the phrase given to me is placed in the emphatic first position for emphasis. So it says this, given to me all authority both in heaven and on earth. Given to me this authority has been given. Note carefully in the Great Commission, the first person pronoun. It's a key actually in the whole book. You, you go back to the Sermon on the Mountain. Well, the rabbis, the teachers say this, I say to you. The teachers say this, I say to you. The teachers say this and that, I say to you. I want you to notice that the Great Commission is totally Christocentric. Christ gives the commission, it's his commission, and it's all about him. It's all about his teaching. Notice this authority was given to him. And the one who gave him this universal authority is God the Father. Christ proclaims God's gift to him of universal authority over the heavens and over the earth. This is Jesus' final self-claim. It's a new revelation of himself in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is the sovereign Lord over the earth and over the heavens. He has all authority over seven and a half billion people who are on this earth. He has all authority over the Kremlin, over Beijing, over the White House. He towers over them all. Revelation 1.5, we read, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Someday all will bow to him. But he's not only sovereign Lord over this entire earth, no matter what the newspapers say. He's sovereign Lord over heaven. Revelation chapter 5. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped him. Sovereign Lord in heaven. He's the centerpiece in heaven, my dear friends. All authority has been given to him. Now, this proclaims the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the incomparable Christ. He has awesome authority and power. He cannot be put in the pantheon of other gods. He's not the mild-mannered humanist of the liberals. He is sovereign Lord. And there will be a day when every knee will bow to him, my dear friends. Every knee will bow. This shows us that Christ and the Christian faith is not a local religion. 
You go to different places in the world and they'll say something like this. Well, Christianity is, is a, a Western religion. It's, it's an American religion. You may not know this, but Jesus is not from California. He's a Mideasterner. He had tan skin. He lives really between two worlds. Christianity is a universal religion. Jesus Christ is not a local deity or a local prophet. He is the one who is Lord of the whole earth and of heaven. And that's why the famous German theologian, Eric Zauer, writes these words. Missions work is a divine must. Remissions of sin should and must be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. It is not left up to our choice whether or not we will testify to the work of the message of the cross. Our message is universal, not local, and we have to preach it to all. Now third, the greatness of the commission. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Now after Jesus' uh, thunderous um, declaration of all authority, we have the therefore. Now the therefore tells us in light of universal authority given to him by God the Father, therefore he has the right to make this commission. Powerful commission, huge in its scope. Not only that, the problems facing these men are humanly speaking, insurmountable. He's telling them to do something impossible. But he has all authority. And so they can go. This is the assurance and the confidence that they can carry out this mission. Who he is sets the stage for the Great Commission. None of us could ever make this commission. We could not make this the mission statement of our church if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, who's the fulfillment of all these things. Now to the core of the commission. Disciple all nations. The main verb is a, a verb of command. As you know, it's an imperative. Disciple or make disciples. So it is a command, it's not a suggestion. As has often been said, this is not the great suggestion. It's the great, great commission. Now the verb is related to the noun form disciple. A disciple is actually a designation Matthew uses for a believer. The word disciple, however, includes the concepts of believing, following, Learning, obeying, submitting to, becoming like the master. So it's a key word that encompasses all of these ideas in what a believer is. We're followers of the Lamb. Now, the process of making disciples begins with proclamation of the message among those who have not heard it or received it. For example... In Acts 14, 21. And when they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples. So it starts with evangelism. The Great Commission is really universal evangelism. 
It is preaching. It is proclamation. It is heralding. It's hear ye, hear ye. It is news. And if it's news, it has to be spoken. It has to be proclaimed. It's claimed that Francis of Assisi said these words. We don't know if he really said it or not, but he said these words. Preach the gospel, and if you have to, use words. Let me repeat that. Preach the gospel, but if you have to, use words. The gospel's news. It has to be spoken, not just acted out or lived. It has to be proclaimed. It has to be defended. It has to be explained. If you doubt that, listen to Paul's prayer request, which is at the end of almost all of his letters. Listen to this one from Ephesians chapter 6. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Now listen carefully. Making supplication for all the saints. Notice our prayer ministries. It should be a quite a big prayer ministry. We're to pray for all the saints, all the people in our circle. Well, Paul's a saint, and also for me. Now here's his prayer request. Listen to it very carefully. Pray for me, that words may be given to me. Notice, words. In opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the good news, for which I am an ambassador in change, and that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Notice, it's news, it's good news, but it must be spoken. Can't just be so-called exampled or lived out. It should be lived out, but it must always be spoken and defended and explained. That's what Paul is saying. Now, what is, news, uh, what is new to these disciples is the scope of the mission. They already knew they were being trained, right? In Matthew chapter 4, uh, Jesus said, I'll make you, I'm going to make you uh, fishers of men. You're going to be winning men. Uh, Follow me, and, and I'll train you to do this. They understood that. He had sent them out to preach. They, they got that. They were going to reach Israel. They were going to bring the message of the Messiah. They didn't know, however, that it was through the whole world. That's what's new to them. It's a global enterprise. In other words, the USA, Mexico, South America, all the African countries, China, Russia, Europe, India, Korea, Japan. Jesus said in, in Acts 1a, to the ends of the earth, you men are going. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached to 3,000, he must have been quite a preacher, Acts 2.5 says, that people from every nation under heaven were there to hear the gospel. And there's an emphasis on tongues and language and speaking. The tongue symbolizes that this message that will be proclaimed was really for every language, every tongue. It must be spoken. And this is why, my dear friends, we must resist the idea that we are not to proselyte, this is very popular worldwide. We have no right to change people's minds. We have no right to uh, change people's religion. It's not our job. People don't want us doing it. It's offensive. So don't do it. 
Maybe you saw a couple years ago there were some young people in Afghanistan and they were doing mercy ministries for the Afghans, but presenting the gospel. And good things are happening in Afghanistan. And some of them were killed. And in the European papers, there was no sympathy for them. It was, what are they doing there anyway? Leave those people alone. What right do you have to come and change people? And so we're told today uh, we are not to evangelize. Now, there's a real hypocrisy here. It drives me crazy. We are not to tell people about Christ. We're not to change people, argue for our position, try to propagate our belief. We're not supposed to do that. It's rather offensive to people. But what are the secular humanists doing day and night, 24 hours a day? On television, radio, the internet, magazines, the universities. What are they doing? Propagating their beliefs? Their, their godless secularism? They're, they're having at us. I don't know how our young people stand it. The secularist is propagating a philosophy that is totally contrary to the gospel, but they're okay, they can do this. How do you think the great social change has happened in the last 20 years? Almost shocking to most of us, these uh, uh, catastrophic disruptions of society. How did it happen? Television, that's what happened. The man at the console is a teacher, and they're very good teachers, by the way. They won this without an argument. Let me just say this, you evangelize or you fossilize. God has no grandchildren. We have no choice. We are under a commission to evangelize and we don't need to apologize for it. In fact, I think we need to get more bold. That's what Paul prayed. He says, pray the more boldness when I speak. I'm sure when the disciples first heard this, it was rather bewildering and shocking to them. To the ends of the earth? Now let's go back to our main verb and look at the structure here. Our main verb is making disciples or disciple and it's surrounded by three participles. The first one is going. One commentator uh, translated, move out, reach out, get going. Now of course it's implied in the command itself to all nations that you've got to leave Jerusalem and the homeland and you must go. It's an essential part of the great commission that we move out, we get going. Now, can I remind you, the people Jesus spoke to, they didn't even like to go next door to Samaria. It was go around Samaria. Uh, they, were, they would have no natural desire to travel the world. They didn't like the Gentile world. They were frightened of the Gentile world. They didn't belong to it. Much of, much of what the Gentiles did was abhorrent to them. You get all the way up to Acts chapter 10, verse 28, and Peter says this, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with a or to visit anyone of another nation. Not even to visit these people. Peter, years later, still talking this way. Can you imagine at this time that it said to Thomas, Thomas, you're going to India. I'm not going to India, I don't even like their food. <laughs> you're going to India, far, far away. This was not natural to these people, but that's part of the Great Commission, move out. Now, one of the reasons I'm giving this message is because we do have a problem, and the problem is this, we're not having enough young people move out. If you know anything about missions, missionaries from the 70s and 80s, they're coming off the field. We see it in our own church. Missionaries retiring, coming off the field, making life changes. 
We don't see the recruits. We don't see people volunteering. We have uh, beautiful women. They're always volunteering. They're so beautiful. I had four daughters. I love women. A beautiful wife and four daughters. I never had to do anything in life. They did everything for me. It's amazing I survived. They're ready to go. Where are the men? This is a hard place to leave America. It's comfortable here. If you got any talent, you could probably make some good money. Have a beautiful home, nice car. Move to California. Enjoy the beautiful weather. It's not an easy place to move out of. And if you know anything about the world today, if you watch the news, which you should because we're globalists, the world is getting more and more hostile to our faith. This is something I read just yesterday in a Christian magazine. This is just yesterday, but it can be repeated all over the world. Bolivia, evangelism outlawed along with terrorism. Evangelicals in Bolivia are deeply worried in January after their socialist government changed the penal code to outlaw recruiting people for a religious purpose. In quotes now, whoever recruits, transports, deprives of freedom, or hosts people with an aim of recruiting them to take part. Now listen to this. Talk about confusion. To take part in armed conflicts or religious or worship organizations will be penalized by five to 10, uh, 12 years in prison. They put armed conflict with uh, converting people to Christ, the same thing to them. This is all over the world today. It's in India, China, just go around the world. There's a very few friendly places. The world hostile to evangelism. But my friends, we're under a commission. We must go. And it may mean death. And that's why the Lord Jesus gave us this marvelous prayer we should pray in our churches. The harvest is plentiful, that's for sure. Seven and a half billion people. The laborers are, are few, we know that's for sure. Can't even get Sunday school teachers. Therefore, pray earnestly. Did you hear that? Earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers to his harvest. Now, I've got to watch my time, but I want to say something practical. Remember, we're in the dispensation of grace, not legalism. So don't look at your watches right now. If you have to leave, ju just leave. I may need a few extra minutes. I want to just say something about how do we raise up missionaries in our local churches? How do we touch the young people? Here's a couple ways. One is give them good missionary biographies. This is what happened to me. I'm 14 or 15 years of age. I don't remember exactly. And I was given the biography of Hudson Taylor. I was never the same. I was so challenged by that life. Young people need a challenge. They need role models. They got more energy they can possibly handle. That's why they're always getting in trouble. Give them a role model. Give them a vision of what they can do and the sacrifices they can make. So good biographies in your church and your children. Read them with your children at the table. And then mission trips. Do you realize how many missionaries are on the field today because they took a short-term uh, uh, mission trip? It's, it's just actually amazing how many missionaries are there because they got a taste of the world and they wanted to go back and serve. And then I'm going to tell you a great secret. When a missionary comes to your church, now listen to me very carefully. This is very important to me. When a missionary comes to your church, here's what often happens. They come to your church, they give their missionary report, you give them their check, and off they go. Right? Don't do that. When a missionary comes to your church, all right, they give their report, they only have a certain amount of time. They get their check. But here's what you do. And I learned this at about 16 years of age. Have the missionary over for dinner. 
Have a group of people with that missionary and spend an evening asking endless questions. Ask about the culture, about the country, about the people, about the problems, about trusting the Lord. I have learned so much about the world, so much about missions in the Lord's work through talking to hundreds of missionaries over my life. Today at lunchtime, we were at several missionaries hearing reports, and I just wish we had more time because I'd have bombed them with questions. I'd have sucked the life out of them, seriously. They'd have walked out exhausted. We had a missionary recently come by. He's actually a, a, a young man that grew up in our church, but he's in another church and another mission. And we had him come, and um, we spent the evening together with him. And he said, you know, no one does this. No one does. I go to a church, I give my report out the door. Have them to your table. Have your children there. And then start asking questions. What's your culture like? What kind of food do you eat? Do you drive a car? Do you drive a camel? What do you do? Uh, ask them these kind of questions, and they can learn. They can learn so much uh, from this. You will learn. I have learned so much about the Lord's work. I remember at 16 years of age, our camp director was really my mentor for many, many years. This is what I learned from him. When a missionary's there, you go to lunch, you go to dinner, you spend hours asking questions. And I remember about 16 years of age, the great Alan Crane, who had been a missionary with the China Inland Mission, he had seen things among the Lisu people. We spent three hours at a lunch talking to him about questions. And here I am, 16, and hearing these marvelous stories of conversions in China uh, during this, this period, just before the communist revolution, which he went through. And I remember at the end, I said, Mr. Crane, could you tell us one more thing? He says, yes, God is faithful. Trust him. He is faithful. He will not let you down. Well, that's what I'm asking you to do. When a missionary comes the next time, get a group of people, have a dinner together, and say, this is Q&A night. We're not having a missionary report. We're going to ask you the questions. We want to know all about you. What's your, what's your spiritual disciplines? What about your family? What about your finances? I mean, ask the hard questions. Let's go back now to the Great Commission here with our uh, statement, uh, Disciple All Nations. D.A. Carson writes, see, do we have it on here? No, we do not have it on here. Okay, that's fine. It's in my notes. That's where it belongs. There are these three participles. The first one is go, move out, reach out, move out. The next two are very important, and I want to emphasize this. D.A. Carson writes, the task of making disciples is characterized by baptism and instruction. So the next one is baptizing them, the new converts, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Note very, very carefully that the rite of baptism is part of the Great Commission. Are you with me? Making disciples of Jesus Christ includes baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism In baptism, the disciple publicly proclaims his or her identification with Christ as follower, learner, pupil, student. Now, stop here. Baptism is an essential part of the Great Commission. Baptism is filled with deep theological truths. Deep theological truth and meaning. In baptism, we see and proclaim the greatness of the gospel message, the death of the Son of God, his burial, his physical bodily resurrection from the dead, our unique union relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit, 
Our new life in Christ, forgiveness of sins, the new beginning, the new commitment. This is what a follower does. He is baptized, and we need to teach people this, that they need to be baptized. Baptism is not an option, and it's full of deep significance. Great truths are involved, and I think people get baptized, they don't even realize it. So they should receive instruction before and go into the depth of all that is symbolized by your baptism. And I would say this, and very important, that when you have a baptism, you have one of the best evangelistic opportunities. At a baptism, explain the depth of what is symbolized here by this rite. Another significant feature of Christian baptism is the name in which one is baptized. Notice that. We're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're not baptized in the name of John the Baptist or John Calvin or Wesley or any denomination. Even Paul was abhorred by such an idea in 1 Corinthians 1.13. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Such an idea, just banish it. I want you to notice here We are baptized in the name, not the names. Very important. Baptized in the one name. Name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting as we come to the end of Matthew's gospel that we have strategically placed this this commission. It really is a beautiful summary of what do we do with the book. But we come to this intriguing and unexpected statement in the gospel. It's actually the earliest known statement of the Trinitarian formula. And so the book ends with this Christian statement that you are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What we have here is a confession of the Trinity and of the divine nature of Christ. Let me read something to you by Frederick Dale Bruner. He writes this. We confess this one God with three names as true God. The Son's name inside the one name was used by the early Christians to defend the divine nature of Christ and in the great Christological controversies. Athanasius argued this point with Arius. The Son is put on the same level as the Father and the Spirit in this terse triadic formula. This is really quite unique. What we learn from this is that all members of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are in a union relationship with God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it also gives us a further revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in our baptism, he is placed there. The Son is there in the middle between Father and Holy Spirit and placed on the same level. His divine nature. And again, let me remind you the position of Christ. And this is a Jewish gospel. And this helps explain why at the beginning of the discourse, they worship him. They worship him. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But the Son is right there in the center, his position. All this and more is given in baptism. Baptism is important. But baptism, my friends, has fallen on hard times. Hard times. I am shocked beyond words at the number of Christians I meet that have never been baptized. I was just talking to a couple. They're in another church. They're a good couple, um, serving the Lord in their church, busy for the Lord, living righteously. And I just found out, 35 years in Christ, they have never been baptized. What is that about? Well, usually our churches aren't saying anything about it. 
Many parachurch organizations claim Matthew 28 as their motto, and they will, uh, they will have at the back of their literature, the front of their literature, something like, um, disciple all nations, dot, 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 I am with you always. They leave out baptism. I've read books on discipleship, and I looked real quickly, and books on discipleship, anything about baptism. Not a word about baptism. <clears throat> we had a, a couple that uh, lived uh, across the street from us, and they were with a discipleship organization, and uh, they were full-time in discipling people. Well, I thought this was very interesting. They were discipling people, but they never said one thing about baptism. They didn't want to get into all those arguments, you know. And they themselves just went to church Sunday morning, one hour Sunday morning. They weren't involved in a church. This is uh, a, a defective uh, discipleship program. Any missionary will tell you that people will make professions of faith, they'll go to Bible study, they may go to church, but they will not get baptized. Baptism is like a crucial moment in which you break and you identify as a follower of Christ. This happened in my own life. My parents would not let me get baptized because it was an insult to them because I had already been baptized as an infant. Don't remember anything about it. But when I was 18, they said, you can do whatever you want. So at 18, I, right as soon as I was 18, I got baptized, and they came to my baptism, and praise the Lord, the speaker was a great gospel preacher. They heard the gospel, but they couldn't understand. What about your religion? As if they gave me any religious, like most people. We, we gave you religion. They didn't do a thing religiously. I don't even think they, they ever, uh, ever touched the Bible. But I, I had been baptized as a child. They saw it as rejecting the past. We must not be silent about baptism. A lot of these youth churches today, you'll, you'll see uh, uh, that almost nothing is said of baptism. One man said to me, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. not about baptism or Lord's Supper or doctrine. What Jesus is he talking about? <laughs> if it's all about Jesus, which it is, it is, this whole commission's about Jesus, <clears throat> then how about listening to what he said? Do what he says. It's a novel idea. Notice the next participle, teaching them, the new disciples, to observe, obey all that I've commanded you. This is an extremely important to grasp the meaning and significance of these words. So let's break these down into two parts. Two parts. Teaching disciples to obey all that Jesus had commanded. Now, up until this point, Jesus is the teacher. There's only one teacher in the Christian faith. We have, probably have many teachers here, but there's only one teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew uh, 23, verse 8. We only teach what Jesus taught. We don't teach anything else. We do that, run out of church. Now, I want you to notice what he says here. He says, I want you, uh, uh, teaching them, so part of the Great Commission is instruction, content, to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice the I, the personal pronoun again. I have commanded, I have commanded, I have commanded. It's all about him and his teaching, not our teaching. Totally Christocentric. Now the key word, the key word here is the word observe, obey. This is so important. What Jesus is talking about is obedience-oriented teaching, not simply cognitive-oriented teaching. In other words, teaching people to obey the commands of Christ will mean teaching content, teaching doctrine, but it also includes exhorting, challenging, rebuking, 
counseling, holding people accountable, confronting behavior. These are not just college lectures. We are teaching people to obey and live this life. Watch out for the three dots. Here's, a, here's something from a Christian magazine, and, and I could give you others. Go then to all people everywhere and make them my disciples. Dot, dot, dot. Watch out for those dots. <laughs> What's missing is the rest of the commission. They've only got part of it. It's partial. It's defective. At the um, ETS meeting uh, a number of years ago, Evangelical Theological Society, every year, it's usually in November, they have a, a theme. And the theme one year was teach them dot, 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 all things. Later it came out, teach them all things. Well, when this advertisement came out, that's the theme of the conference, teach them all things. The missiologist picked up on that right away. That's not the Great Commission. It's not teach them all things. It's teach them to obey all things. That's different. That's obedience oriented teaching. And this is a major part of our commission. We teach content. We teach doctrine. But we never stop there. We want them to live this life. The Lord Jesus Christ warned repeatedly of the dangers of calling him Lord, hearing his word, but failing to obey it and put it into practice. James understood this. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. You are only deceiving yourself, and it will not stay with you. I could give you a brilliant lecture on baptism right now, but we don't have time. I would give you all the views of baptism, the modes of baptism. Can't stop there, because I'm going to exhort you to be baptized. If you have not been baptized, you need to be baptized. We will help you. We will instruct you. That if you are a believer, you need to be baptized now. I'm going to exhort you and challenge you as much as I can. I am not going to be satisfied that you had a nice lecture on baptism. You must be baptized. Because that's part of the Great Commission. Teach you to obey these wonderful lectures. RVG Tasker reminds us that Christianity is essentially a life to be lived. Christianity is essentially a life to be lived. Christians are to bear much fruit for God. Christians will be zealous for good works for which they were created. Christians are to walk worthy of the gospel and worthy of our high calling. Christians are to grow in Christ-like character. Christians are to be practitioners of biblical truth. Only those who hear and do are blessed, says James. If you know these things, Jesus said, blessed only if you do them. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. And then in Titus 1.1, this wonderful statement by Paul, the knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness. In other words, truth and godliness go together. In other words, doctrine is always practical. It's always practical. Doctrine taught properly, we can never divorce the content of the commands with the life to be lived. It's transformational, it's obedience, it's practice, it's growth, it's life change. This is so important in the Christian life to get this and understand that this is part of the Great Commission. So we're not just uh, satisfied with a nice lecture and a, a really a razzle-dazzle sermon. People say, I'm coming back to get that. It made me feel really good. It's about living it. It's the life to be lived. It's taking this truth and putting it immediately into shoe leather. In fact, every time you hear the truth and you do not obey it, you bring yourself under judgment. When you come under the light of the truth of God, you are responsible. Remember what Luke 6.40 says. 
It's not there. But do not fear. It's in my notes. <laughs> Luke 6, 40. The disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, must be like his teacher. Can I remind you, our goal is to move people to Christ's likeness. That's sanctification. We cannot be satisfied with anything else. We cannot be satisfied with a passive audience that sits there to wonderful lectures and walks out the door. When we give the commandments of Christ, the truths of Christ, we challenge people to live them or we have failed. And they are not blessed unless they do. That is the Great Commission. And then next, we are to teach disciples all that Jesus commanded. All that Jesus commanded. And that brings us to this beautiful verse in Acts 20, verse 27. And how, how's my time? Mark, how am I doing? I'm okay? Okay, is there any problems? It's your problem. Okay. Remember, for every problem, there's a solution. If there's no solution, you have a problem. This is a wonderful passage. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's, that's how he ministered. I, I gave you the whole package. The great covenants, the great patriarchs, the great promises of God, the whole redemptive plan. I gave it to you all. My dear friends, go church to church to church. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, this is the truth. Some of it's our age. But to many Christians, the Bible's a foreign book. They have no idea how it fits together. Maybe they read here, read there. They have no idea of the Pentateuch and the historical books and the four Gospels and the letters. They don't know. It is a foreign book to them. Talk about the story of the Bible. There's a storyline. Genesis 1-1, Revelation 22. They don't have a clue. Not even a clue. My dear brothers and sisters, we've got to challenge disciples of the Lord Jesus. They must know the story. They, the first thing a new believer must do is read that Bible. And don't do this five-year Bible reading stuff. Tell them, put everything aside, put all these distractions, and you get to finish your Bible in six months. You can read through the whole thing. It's a story. It's God's story. It's God's beautiful, redemptive story. It's so full of all that you need to live life and more. Really challenge people, my dear friends, to know the story of the Bible, to be comfortable with the Bible, and to know the Bible and Howard. Notice, teaching them all that Jesus commanded. This is especially true in our secular society. There is a secular tsunami that has run right over our churches. And if we're not teaching, if we're not teaching on gender and sex and hell and substitutionary atonement and Christ's unique person and work, they're just going to be taken away. They're hearing all day from the world, in the university, in the high school, the junior high. My junior high uh, grandchildren are telling me things that I'd never heard in junior high. They're getting it day and night, and they hear little from us. Now, let me just close before we look at the final part here with this. And this is a story from a missionary friend of mine. He's in a country. I cannot mention the country. And in this country, in a certain section of it, there are many missionaries that work throughout the country, but they stay in this one particular area. So he meets many missionaries. And this missionary said to me in the last year, he said, Alex, I know most of these missionaries. He's sort of a senior missionary. And he said this to me. He said, you know, they have no real concept of the Great Commission. 
I've not even heard of one baptism. I've not even heard of a baptism. I know they're not teaching the full doctrines of Christ and teaching people to live it in daily life, worthy of the high calling to which they have been called. I'm telling you, this is not happening. Everyone's got their little tiny uh, ministry, and they've got some, a lot of mercy ministries. They're doing good things. I cannot uh, com- uh, criticize the good things they're doing, but it's not the Great Commission. So I say to you today, do you, how do you fit in the big picture of the Great Commission? How does your church fit in it? How do your missionaries fit, fit in it? So you have ministries to the poor. You have ministries of building homes in Mexico. You have ministries in uh, water wells in Central America, which, by the way, our church does do. How does this all fit in the Great Commission? What's the part it fits Are we keeping the Great Commission before our missionaries? The whole thing, everything that we've looked at very, very briefly. I wish I had two sessions with you. We could talk more about this obedience-oriented teaching and about teaching everything that Christ commanded. Good, well-balanced diet of the Scriptures. That's why we all here agree on the systematic uh, teaching of the Scriptures so that people get the whole thing and not the little favorite parts or hobby horses. So your question that you must answer is this. How does your church fit into the big picture of the Great Commission? How do your missionaries fit? How do you fit? How do you support the Great Commission? Do you know the Great Commission? The full teaching of of Christ's mission statement. How do you fit in there? You, You may not participate in the whole of the Great Commission, but you support it. You understand your part in it and how the whole fits together. Every church needs to be challenged with this regularly, not once every 10 years, but this brought before them. Everyone asked, this is Christ's mission statement. It's not ours. For his church that he's building, our local church has to be involved in it. In fact, in many ways, it's the local church that carries out the Great Commission, baptizing, teaching, uh, following up on people, exhorting people, rebuking people, disciplining people. All that's part in this teaching them to obey everything Jesus had commanded. And don't leave anything out, by the way. Now, the end part here, coming to the conclusion. Mark feels better. I can see he's a little more relaxed right now. He's not looking around. I love Mark. He's such a wonderful person. He's the one who asked me to come speak, so blame him. (laughs) He'll take all the blame. He's a man with big shoulders. All right, now the beauty, the beauty, the greatness of his promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to notice four points. First of all, the conclusion, behold, look, pay attention to what am I about to say. It's essential that you hear this. Don't miss this. Here it is. Are you listening? Behold. I myself am with you always. What a conclusion. Every book needs a great conclusion. This is a great conclusion. I myself, notice the first person pronoun. I myself am with you always. This is both promise and assurance. Don't worry. I'm there. I've got your back. I've got you covered. Frederick Dale Bruner writes this. This great commission with its great promise of the presence of this great person. This idea, I'm with you, is an Old Testament idea. Go back to Joseph, and Joseph goes down to Egypt, and God says, don't worry, I'm with you. I'm with you, I've got you covered. 
You can count on me. There's nothing more encouraging to the believer than to know he's with us. Defends us, protects us, enables us, assures us, gives us all that we need to do the job. When you're on an airplane and that airplane is literally bouncing around, it's good to know I'm with you. You're not alone. In fact, one night I flew into Newark Airport and we got caught in a storm just before we, le- uh, we landed. And the, the flight attendant sat next to me, buckled in. She says, this is scary. I said, you shouldn't be telling me that. This is scary. That plane was being hit by hail and rain and just dropping. Oh, he's with me. <laughs> he goes down with me if I go down. I'm in a country in Europe, and it's nighttime. They pick me up from the airport. It is raining. I can't even see, and the guy's going 100 miles an hour, literally 100 miles, maybe over 100 miles an hour. I just said, Lord, you're with me. That's the only insurance I have. I was in Mexico five years ago, and we left the church. It was pitch dark. I'm, I'm trying to help my wife to get to the car, and I don't know. There's a bridge here, and I open the door. I put her in the car. I step back, and I go right off that bridge. Five feet down into a drainage ditch. How I wasn't killed, well, he was with me. There were rocks there. There was about that much water, and I fell flat into the water and broke my fall. Now, it hurt, but I I could have been killed. And they couldn't have got down there. They couldn't even see me. Everyone's screaming. And I said, okay, I'm all right. It's all right. Whew. I'm with you. I got you covered. I'll tell you, there's nothing more comforting when people go into countries where you know you could be killed. You could be thrown out. There are so many problems we face, dangers we face. What assurance you're not alone. And then he says third, and then he says always, which is literally all the days, all the days, not just some days, good days, a few days, but all the days, you'll never be alone. I'm with you every hour. I'm with you every minute. And then he says, finally, to the end of the age, not to the end of your ministry, to the end of the age, the coming of the Lord to judge this earth, every generation, he is with them, which tells us of the invincibility of the church of Jesus Christ and its message. It will go on. In the days of William Carey, they believed, it was generally believed that the Great Commission was only to the apostles, and they carried it out. However, that ignores what he says here. Uh, to the end of the age, not to the end of their ministry or the end of their lives. It's, it's through every age, right, to our age today. We have the glorious promise and assurance that we are not alone. It's his mission. He will be with us. He'll enable us. Everything, we trust him. We rest on him. And as Mr. Alan Crane said from China, he said, you can trust him. He is faithful. That was his message to me as a 16-year-old teenager. He is faithful. And I can tell you over my life, he has been faithful to me. I've not been so faithful, but he has always been faithful to me. Is it a great commission? Let's be great commission leaders. Let's challenge our local church. Let's challenge our missionaries. Let's see the big mission, the big picture Jesus gave. Let our churches carry it out. And may our churches understand what we're doing. Not just doing a bunch of rituals. We're carrying out the mission, the mandate of Christ our Lord, who has all authority in heaven and on earth.
Stand with me as we close in prayer. Our God, our Father, we thank you for this marvelous passage of Scripture. It's your word, not our word. And you are our God, and you are with us. We are never alone. And, and we have the assurance of your empowering work in our lives. Help us to grasp what our Lord is saying here. May we not just pick it apart and take what we like or what is uh, convenient for us, but may we understand and seek to carry out in whatever way the full great commission, and it is a great commission, it is so full of deep truth and theology and meaning. May it be ours and may we love it and revel in it. May we love to tell other people and, and ask them, do you know the Great Commission? May our missionaries know it. May they, may they be able to explain it. May they be passionate about it. We ask all these things. We thank you for our day together in missions and in propagating the great message, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was raised from the dead. May we love that message and may we do all we can to let all nations know, to the end of the earth, every people group know the work of Christ and the person of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.